Well, friends, I have the joy, the honor, the delight of preaching to you all on this first Sunday of Advent. And I have to say that, you know, as somebody who now has been pastoring at this church for three and a half years <laughs> and preaches on a bit more of a regular basis, there's some sermons that come easily. You're like, okay, that's the word. That's what I'm going to say. And it's just easy and clear as day. <laughs> and then there's sermons like this one where you're like just kind of stumbling through, tumbling through, kind of clunking your way through. And then you have in-laws in town for four and a half days in the midst of it. And so <laughs> it's going to be a bit bumpy ride, friends, because let me just say hoping is hard. <laughs> um, but I hope that you'll um, sit with me through this. And uh I am excited and hopeful for um, some word, something in this to speak to you today. And uh, just to kind of set this up, we are in the season of Advent, friends, if it isn't clear by now. <laughs> and for the next four weeks, we are going to be in this Advent sermon series called Playing in Mary's Song. And uh, the sermon sort of preaching team had this idea of being in the same text for four straight weeks, which not a lot of people do, but we thought, you know, Advent is this time of waiting and slowing and yearning. And so we wanted to be in the same text for four weeks and we decided to be in Mary's song. And so we are taking the traditional themes of Advent of each week um, that there's, you know, Christians around the world celebrating these themes each week oh. of hope and peace and joy and love. And we're going to be going through Mary's song together, looking at what that song says about these different themes. And so I get to preach about hope today. And I don't know about you, but hope is a very strange thing in this time, is it not? <laughs> it's difficult, it's curious, it's precarious. And on a macro level, I think the world that we're living in, the things that we've gone through in these last several years has made hope feel a little bit far off. The collective trauma that we've endured as we, we think about the pandemic and we think about racial uprisings, we think about mass shootings and acts of hate and violence against queer and trans siblings. We think about climate change and climate disasters. Do you remember, friends, that a couple years ago there were mass fires and the sky was red? That was just two years ago. We think about political upheaval and insurrection and attacks on human rights and women's rights and liberties and all of this. Friends, this, these things do not inspire hope. <laughs> um, and in, if you're like me, it might be easy to feel the opposite of hope exhaustion, despair, languishing is a word that comes to mind, overwhelmed, anxious, all of these things. Hope feels difficult to access in these days. And then you add on top of the things that are happening in the world, just the personal things. I think about the Sheridans going through sickness after sickness after sickness in their house, the loss of loved ones, stress at work, vocational transitions, family difficulties, church trauma, faith transitions, many of you being new to our church in these last few years. I think about all these ways that maybe it feels like God has not heard our cries. God has not answered our prayers. God has not intervened when we so desperately long for it. 
can all feel a little bit much. And yet today we get to wrestle with hope. We get to wrestle with hope together. And we get to wrestle with hope as we look at Mary, as we look at her song, as we see what her theologizing teaches us about hope, even in the midst of overwhelming forces of darkness, injustice, evil, chaos, all the things that surround. And so we get to turn to the Gospel of Luke this day. And just to set up the context, I just want to remind you all that the Magnificat, this story comes in the Gospel of Luke. And I don't know how each preacher is going to set up this song. And I just wanted, since it's the first week, just to kind of carry us through the, the narrative of Luke a little bit. And just encourage you all to, uh, if you can, on your own time, to just read the first chapter of Luke as we get to the song. Because the scripture reading today was just, you know, the song itself. But there's all this backstory leading up to the song. And so we know in the very beginning of Luke, there's these sort of parallel narratives where the angel Gabriel comes both to Zechariah and then to Mary. And both of them are promised that they're going to have a child. Um, and Zechariah is uh, literally shut up <laughs> while Mary uh, sings the song. And so there's this kind of contrast of what's happening with Zechariah and Mary. And Mary, for those of us who kind of don't always think about the context and historical realities. Mary is sort of on the, the lowest margins of society, the lowest rungs of society. She is a poor, unwed, dark-skinned girl from Nazareth of Galilee, a place that's on the outskirts, a place that's on the margins, a place that's dismissed and discounted by most people. And yet this angel comes to her, angel Gabriel comes to her in this wild and sort of unimaginable encounter saying she is blessed and highly favored, that the favor of the Lord is upon her, that she will conceive in her womb, she will bear a son, that he'll be named Jesus, that the son will be great, he'll be called the son of God. Uh, and this is what happens before we get to the song is that Mary in this sort of astonishing act of faith and surrender says these famous words. Many of us have heard these words. Here I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And as that seed of promise grows inside of her, that baby grows inside of her, she wants to talk about it. She wants to process this. She goes to her cousin Elizabeth 70 miles away. She makes haste to travel 70 miles to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is also with child. John the Baptist in her womb greets, um, greets Jesus, baby Jesus, kicking inside the womb. These women come together. They're sharing their stories. They're sharing about what's happening. They greet each other in joy. And Elizabeth said to Mary, blessed is she who believed. Blessed is she who believed that there will be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And then comes this song, this kind of chain of events, this story that's unfolding and progressing has this pause, this narrative break with this song that Mary declares, the song that we call the Magnificat. And there's just a few things in this song that I wanna talk about today as we wrestle with hope and talk about hope. I wanna just highlight a few things and encourage us to sit with what does Mary's song, what does Mary's theologizing, what does her proclamation teach us about hope? And the first thing is this, that Mary's song does not exist in a vacuum. 
that Mary's song actually builds upon a rich tradition of songs, of prophets, of poets who went before her, that her song is actually part of a larger refrain. This song is written very much in the style of Hebrew poetry. It uses these couplets that are very much um, present in a lot of the Psalms and the Hebrew poetry. And it uses parallelism, which is a, a very common device in Hebrew poetry. And many scholars have pointed out the way that this hymn of praise, this Magnificat, this, this um, sort of magnificent declaration of God's faithfulness and God's work among the generations, that it comes not in a vacuum, but it comes in a long tradition of other songs. Other people who've sung the song of hope before, she joins in that song. She joins in the song of Moses. She joins in the song of Miriam. She joins in the song of Deborah. She joins in the song of Asaph. She joins in the song of these prophets and poets who've gone before her and declared God's faithfulness, declares God's hope in very similar ways. And many people have pointed out also that this song um, very much parallels Hannah's song. And just like Mary is about to bear child and sings the song, Hannah is also in the situation where she's been barren for a long time, hoping and longing and waiting for something. And she becomes pregnant and she sings this song just like Mary does. There's just a little slide there and you don't have to, I'm not going to read it, but you can just see all the different parallels between Hannah's song and Mary's song. And so Mary knows that she's part of a bigger tradition. She's part of a bigger story. That this hope that she carries, these declarations that she makes, that they don't come on her own. That she sort of stands on the backs of ancestors, of prophets and priests and poets who went before her, declaring the need for God's rescue and salvation. Celebrating a God who delivers from exile and tyranny. Celebrating a God who exalts unexpected and lowly people, servants that are unlikely, servants like Jael, who, if you know the story of Jael, who, you know, stuck a tent peg in the, in the head of her enemy. Um, this God who um, uses unlikely people to turn things upside down, to usher in God's reign in the face of tyranny and oppression. This song is not just Mary's declaration. It's not just a song of personal hope. It's part of a greater collective of faithful ones who were bold enough to declare who God is in the face of opposing forces. That God is faithful to fulfill God's promises throughout generations. Hope is a collective inheritance. And it's also interesting to note that in addition to this long tradition that Mary joins in, that there's also this sort of progression that happens in the song. You see the changing in pronouns and you see the changing in subject from the beginning to the end of the song. That it begins, um, you know, some of us might know sort of these big sweeping statements of reversal. If you saw Pastor Michael's shirt over there, he's wearing um, a shirt that has um, the words of the Magnificat on it. Oh, he's gonna, okay. <laughs> I thought you were gonna stand up and model for us. <laughs> He was just grabbing his iPad. Uh, <laughs> um, but the words of the Magnificat actually begin with very tender, intimate, personal declarations. 
my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. God has looked on my lowly state. Generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. And it's from this place of intimate and personal encounter that Mary's able to turn outward, to sweep into this cosmic vision of reversal. The proud being scattered, the lowly being lifted, the hungry being filled. This progression starts with Mary seeing herself in the story. That this big, sweeping, cosmic work of God begins in this intimate and personal way. That God saw me. That God called me blessed. That God spoke to me. That God gave me a promise. And so this hope that we hold, holds in tension the realities of this intimate and personal reality of God. With these cosmic, sweeping, salvific realities of God. Mary places herself in the story. And her song teaches us that hope is both intimate and cosmic. It involves the trajectory of our personal story as well as the bigger story. And if you see the actions of God, these big cosmic sweeping actions of God in this text, we see all of these verbs. We see all of this activity of God where there's all these verbs, verb after verb after verb, and God is the one who is acting these things. God is looking on servants, doing great things, showing strength, scattering the proud, bringing down the powerful, lifting up the lily, filling the hungry with good things. I'm running out of breath. <laughs> Sending the rich away empty, coming to the aid of his children according to the promise he made. There's action after action after action. And I'm not a Greek grammar expert, but I was very curious about this because if you look at this text and you see um, the, the way that this text is written, the song is declared. Um, you notice that these verbs, in English, they're translated as past tense. Um, but in Greek, it's actually a tense that doesn't exist in English. It's called the aorist tense. And aorist verbs, um, they are generally translated in English into past tense. But they're not just past tense. They're actually used to convey an action that has already begun, but it's also ongoing. It expresses what is timelessly true, past, present, and future. And so there's a way that these actions of God that she's naming, it's not just that God has done these things. It's that God is doing these things and that God will do these things. There's almost like this multiverse of God activity, right? And we think about Mary as poor, unwed teenage girl from Nazareth, living in the underbelly of a violent, hierarchical, patriarchal empire. And she's making these declarations about the activity of God, all these things that God is doing. And I wrestled with this because I'm like, Mary, have you actually seen these things? Are these things actually really happening? When you look around and you see the forces of empire and you see the violence and you see the tyranny, do you actually see, is this what you're seeing? That God is scattering the proud and bringing down the powerful, lifting up the lowly, filling the hungry with good things. Do you actually see these things? And I wrestle with that because I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. In the face of the violent Roman empire, I don't know if this is what you're actually seeing. And yet her hope is so confident that even though these actions have not been completed, she proclaims them as if they've already been accomplished. Her confidence in the character of God, God's work to liberate others is so strong, strong that she's able to say these things are already done. 
even though she doesn't see it. Mary is so certain that God's promises will come to pass, even though she doesn't see them right now. And so she teaches us that hope transcends the confines of time and circumstance. Hope is not just in certain outcomes, certain things in being um, made real, but her hope is actually in the unfailing character of God to accomplish these things, not just the outcome. This is Mary's hope, and this is Mary's song. And as I thought about these different textures of, of Mary's hope in this song, this hope that is both intimate and personal, this hope that is not based on circumstance, this hope that is lined up in the tradition and, and built on the, the sort of rich foundation of her ancestors who hoped with her and alongside of her. I, I couldn't help think about my work, my current work as a hospital chaplain. Because hope has been a tricky thing as a chaplain, let me tell you. Some of you might know that um, in September, I began a 400-hour internship working as a hospital chaplain at Kaiser. And being among the sick and the dying on a regular basis uh, has challenged me in my concept of hope. I still remember that in my second week of chaplaincy, I was referred to a patient who was around 22 weeks um, pregnant at the time. And she was experiencing some complications. She was there on bed rest and she was there with her partner. And I, I visited them, um, not knowing a lot about their situation, but they told me what was going on. And they said, you know, we're hoping, we're praying for a miracle. They're listening to, to worship music all day long. They had all their friends, their community praying for them. They're meditating on scripture, on the truth of God. They're doing all these things. And she was praying and claiming in hope that her baby was gonna make it to full term, that everything was gonna be okay. And so I joined her in that hope. I aligned myself with that hope. I prayed for that miracle alongside of her. And I prayed with her in this kind of powerful time of prayer. And her partner even said at the end of that prayer time, I felt that prayer. I felt that prayer. It took. Those were his words. And honestly, I felt something too. I was like, I'm not really charismatic anymore, but I, I you know, I have charismatic roots. And I was like, in that moment, got caught up and a little bit of that energy came back. I was like, yes. I felt it too. I felt something powerful had happened in that space. And a week later, when I went back to the hospital, ooh, I was excited to check in on them and see, you know, how are things going? How are you guys doing to check up on them? And I knocked on their door and they said, we don't want to see you. And I was like, huh, interesting. So I went to talk to the nurse. I was like, oh, how are they doing? What's going on? She's like, oh, you didn't know. She lost the baby two days ago. It was devastating. And that was just my second week, friends. That was my second week of chaplaincy. And I was like, oh, man, this is tricky. Hope is tricky. Hope is really hard. And I've struggled since then in my work as a chaplain with hope because that wasn't the first that wasn't the first story. There's been interaction after interaction of patients hoping and 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 believing and longing for something, yearning for God to work, yearning for God to bring a certain outcome, and that outcome doesn't come to pass. And I was like, friends, how do we keep hoping when this keeps happening? When it feels like we've tried and we've prayed and we've cried out and it seems like these things are not coming to pass, how do we keep hoping? 
Why do we pray for God to act if those prayers don't seem to be answered? Why do we choose to hope when it feels like you're just going to be disappointed? Am I causing harm to people by aligning with their hopes, by praying for these things that they're asking for? Am I causing harm to your faith? Am I setting you up for disappointment? And I began to wonder these things. And I came to a point, honestly, I was really struggling with this and, and feeling like maybe it's easier just to not hope. Maybe it's easier just to not pray for healing. Maybe it's easier just to not have any expectations, lest I be disappointed. And even for me, as I personally am struggling with health things, I've wrestled with this myself as I deal with my own health situation. Like people are like, um, for those of you who don't know, you know, I got diagnosed with an acoustic neuroma. It's like a benign tumor in your head and your ear canal pressing against my brain um, several months ago. And people have been saying, I'm praying for a miracle. I'm praying for that tumor to shrink. I'm praying for this and that. And I was like, I don't know if I want you to pray that. I didn't really ask you to pray that. I don't know how I feel about that, friends. Hope is tricky. But in the midst of wrestling with hope this week and in preparing for this sermon, I was brought back to Mary. And just as Mary drew strength from the songs of people who went before her, like Hannah and Miriam, I'm drawing strength. I'm drawing hope from Mary today. And I hope you will too. Because this poor, unwed teenage girl from Nazareth of Galilee, living on the underside of the Roman Empire, who was part of a community, let me tell you this, part of a community that was waiting and hoping and praying for hundreds of years for God to come, to break through, to bring salvation. They were waiting for hundreds of years and there was only silence. She had every reason not to hope. She had every reason not to pray. She had every reason to hear the words of this angel and be like, nah, <laughs> no, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. She had every reason to not expect change, to not believe that God could act, to think that violence and oppression would win, that she didn't have a place, she didn't have a voice, that she didn't matter, to feel like nothing would ever change. But instead, Mary drew faith from her ancestors. She heard this refrain of their songs. She paid attention to God's promises. She noticed when the spirit of God was working and she said, yes. She heard God's declaration that she was blessed and favored and she received it. And she believed so strongly in the character of God that she declared God's actions that had not even come to pass yet to be in the past, that they're already done. And she knew that they were gonna come to pass in and through her. Mary said, yes. Mary said yes to hope. And friends, she is inviting us to say yes as well. She's inviting us to join this song of the generations that have gone before us, that kept hoping, that kept waiting, that kept yearning because they knew and trusted and believed who God was, even though the circumstances seemed to point otherwise. She's inviting us to hope because to be, hope, to be hopeful is to be human. To be hopeful is to say, the empire will not have the last say. And so friends, wherever you're at today, whatever your struggle you're facing, wherever you feel like it's hard to hope, I hope that you too would say yes, that you would hear these words of Mary, that you would join in her song, that you would find hope from a collective when you can't find it yourself. 
that you would experience God's presence coming to you in intimate and undeniable ways. That you would find yourself swelling with supernatural confidence in the character of God, even when circumstance speaks otherwise. Friends, hoping is hard. But hoping is human. Let us choose to hope together, even in these days, and to know that we don't do it alone. Amen. Amen.